This is a recording of Barlow on Book of Mormon Language, an examination of some strained grammar by Stanford Carmack, published in Interpreter, a journal of Mormon scripture, read by Steve Metcalf. Abstract. Comments made by Philip Barlow on Book of Mormon Language for an Oxford-published book are examined. Inaccuracies are pointed out, and some examples are given that show matching with 1611 King James usage, as well as with other earlier usage. One important conclusion that can be drawn from this study is that those who wish to critique the English language of the Book of Mormon need to take the subject more seriously and approach it with genuine scholarship instead of repeating earlier errors. This has a direct bearing on forming accurate views of Joseph Smith and Book of Mormon translation. Quote, there are some errors which is easier persuaded unto than to some truths. Close quote. Henry, Earl of Monmouth, translator. Most LDS scholars have not carefully investigated Book of Mormon grammar before passing judgment. As a result, this is an area where error and misinformation abound. Even now, few take the trouble to study the earliest textual usage systematically. Work performed in this area by most researchers is done piecemeal and superficially. This has consequences for understanding the text. Many have accepted and furthered the view that Joseph Smith was the English language translator, chiefly because of perceived bad grammar. This currently dominant view, however, is greatly weakened because virtually all of its bad grammar is attested in literate writings of the past. Furthermore, there is a significant amount of suspect grammar found in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon that does not appear to have been the kind of grammar that Joseph Smith knew or would have used. To be clear, however, the determination that suspect grammar is well-formed is not primary. First and foremost, descriptive linguistic studies show that the Book of Mormon contains a host of archaic and extra-biblical forms, constructions, and vocabulary items, and many of these do not fall into the category of potential bad grammar. All this evidence means that the earliest text is not pseudo-archaic, which in turn has explanatory power vis-à-vis -vis questionable grammar. With the passage of time and a greater availability of external textual evidence, an ungrammatical view of Book of Mormon language will become increasingly anti-intellectual. There's plenty of published opinion on Book of Mormon language that is largely inaccurate. For almost two centuries, Writers have not felt a need to know or study past English usage, or to be sufficiently and competently trained in English linguistic analysis before passing judgment on Book of Mormon usage. This is a call for all students of Book of Mormon grammar to begin to take the matter more seriously and carefully. Present-day English intuitions about past usage, as well as biblically-derived grammatical perceptions, can be entirely misleading. Consequently, not only must we reject and discard the grammatical opinions that have been made by many non-Mormon and anti-Mormon critics with respect to Book of Mormon usage, but we must also reject and discard the grammatical opinions made by many prominent LDS scholars. Barlow's Comments Philip L. Barlow, who recently directed a conference titled New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation at Utah State University, wrote the following about Book of Mormon language. Quote, like other translators of ancient texts, and following the precedent set with earlier revelations, 
Smith cast the book into 17th century prose, though his own vocabulary and grammar are evident throughout. Because Jacobean speech was not his native idiom, he sometimes rendered the style inexpertly. Ye, properly a subject, sometimes lapsed into you, object, as the subject of a sentence, as in Mosiah 2.19. An Elizabethan suffix attached to some verbs, but was inconsistently omitted from others, such as yields or putteth. See Mosiah 3.19. Much of this strained language was refined in the second edition. The preface, for instance, was changed from its 1830 rendering of Now if there be fault, it be the mistake of men. Similarly, some 227 appearances of saith were changed to said. Close quote. This quotation differs slightly from the first edition reading, telling us that Barlow reviewed and modified this paragraph for the 2013 edition. With the help of the Oxford English Dictionary, we can take the meaning of the adjective strained as used in this context to mean that Joseph Smith employed language, quote, in a labored, far-fetched, or non-natural, close quote, way. Despite Oxford's mission to further an objective of excellence in research, scholarship, and education, much of this Barlow quotation is, lamentably, inaccurate. Although he is correct in saying a Jacobean speech wasn't Joseph's native idiom, Barlow didn't research 1611 King James Grammar before criticizing Book of Mormon usage, and he didn't consult text-critical materials for his updated edition of 2013, when oversights could have been more easily avoided. Because Barlow's observations are taken by many to be accurate, this book contributes to misperceptions about Book of Mormon language. Critique of Barlow's Comments First, the earliest revelations that Joseph Smith received at least those meant for broad publication, were of the Book of Mormon. Furthermore, it is highly likely the language of the 1828 dictation was similar to the extant translation of Mormon's abridgment. Thus, the dictation of the text of the Book of Mormon in 1828 and 1829 came before and at the same time as early Doctrine and Covenants revelations. It did not come after. In this way, Barlow's mention of earlier revelations isn't accurate. Most readers are left with the wrong impression of things. The three earliest Doctrine and Covenants revelations were given between the dictation of the 116 lost manuscript pages of the Book of Mormon and the dictation of the text that would be published in 1830. Other slightly later Doctrine and Covenants revelations were given not earlier than the 1829 dictation of the Book of Mormon. Second, the statement that Joseph's, quote, own vocabulary and grammar are evident throughout, close quote, is a mischaracterization. In the ten years before 2013, Royal Skousen published a variety of material on archaic lexical usage found in the dictation of the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith probably wasn't familiar with. This lexical evidence was available to Barlow and could have been noted. In addition, John A. Widso had written in 1951, quote, that the vocabulary of the Book of Mormon appeared to be far beyond that of an unlettered youth, close quote. Barlow doesn't convey or discuss this reality either. 
Moreover, digital databases demonstrate that the earliest text of the Book of Mormon contains an abundance of 16th and 17th century grammatical usage that often does not overlap with King James' idiom. Thus, Book of Mormon grammar was effectively foreign to Joseph Smith's own grammar. Some of it is fairly common, but some of it is rather obscure and compelling, since a non-specialist in the early 19th century, that is, someone who wasn't an English philologist, wouldn't have been able to make so many matches, both systematically and individually, with earlier usage. Third, Barlow gives a naive view of subject ye and you usage. This ultimately follows from a received view of Book of Mormon translation, which is the foundational assumption that Barlow operates from. Interestingly, he follows the generally accepted view of Book of Mormon translation, even though the opposing view, the textually more likely view, makes very good sense of data that he discusses on following pages. According to a large database of early modern English, the subject you had become the preferred form no later than the year 1570. Consequently, the subject you is found throughout the 1611 King James Bible. Only in later printings is it rarely found. Here is an example of nearby subject ye and you variation taken from Job 19.3 in the 1611 Bible and compared with the 1769 Bible. 1611 reading, quote, These ten times have ye reproached me. You are not ashamed that you make yourselves strange to me. Close quote. 1769 reading, quote, These ten times have ye reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. Close quote. In Job 19.3, we see the subject ye and the subject you used very close together. There are a number of instances of this in the 1611 Bible and in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, as in the following examples. Mosiah 5.15, quote, That you may be brought to heaven, that ye may have everlasting salvation and eternal life, close quote. Alma 7.6, quote, Yea, I trust that you do not worship idols, but that ye do worship the true and living God. Close quote. This was typical usage of earlier English, clearly shown by ye occurring within nine words of that you more than 1,000 times in early English books online phase one texts. This nearby variation of subject ye and you occurs at a slightly higher rate in 16th century writings, but there are more than 750 17th century examples of it in early English books online phase one texts. Thus, it is something found in writing throughout the early modern English period. Fourth, Barlow mentions the yields and putteth inflectional variation currently found at Mosiah 319, but the modern form, yields, was introduced by Joseph Smith in 1837 marked by him in the printer's manuscript. This appears to have been an unnecessary, entirely optional edit. The dictated form was yieldeth. For the 2013 edition, Barlow could have easily checked whether a modernizing edit had been made at Mosiah 319, but he didn't. Nor did he point out the obsolete but-if 
that is equivalent to unless, occurring just before he yieldeth. Lexical usage, such as but if, dismisses Barlow's observation about vocabulary and weakens his foundational assumption. Suppose the yields and putteth inflectional variation had been original to the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, a reasonable consideration since this kind of variation is found elsewhere in the text. As it turns out, 17th century writings have the same nearby variation. From 1637, William Camden, in Britain, quote, Of joy and mirth the gladsome signs it putteth forth at last, and now her ancient honor she doth vaunt in happy plight, when to her sovereign lord she yields all service due by right. Close quote. From 1681, Thomas Franklin, the annals of King James and King Charles I, quote, as in the other cases where the law putteth the king to any particular charge for the protection of the subject, it always enables him thereto, yields him particular supplies of money for the maintenance of the charge. And here is a rare example from the 1611 King James Bible, in which S inflection varies closely with TH inflection. This is from the Apocrypha. First, Estrus 4.21. Quote, he sticks not to spend his life with his wife, and remembereth neither father nor mother nor country. Close quote. In this verse, he sticks is followed by, and he remembereth. We find similar examples of nearby variation in the Book of Mormon, sometimes with the same verb. From Omni 1.25, For there is nothing which is good, save it comes from the Lord, and that which is evil, cometh from the devil. This inflectional variation remains in the current LDS text. Here is an example of this same inflectional variation with the same verb, from an important 17th century author who wrote the influential and widely read book titled The Pilgrim's Progress, from 1669, John Bunyan, The Holy City. Quote, Gold as it comes from the mine, it cometh co-mixed with its dust and ore. From this type of evidence, we learn that nearby variation of S and TH inflection was part of early modern English usage and was even rarely employed in the 1611 Bible. As English changed over decades and centuries, there was a huge amount of closely occurring inflectional variation. Because of phonology, syntax, and other factors, usage could be quite variable so it's incorrect to think that the variation was somehow defective. In fact, it is axiomatic that variation is characteristic of natural language, and that it is does not necessarily equate with ungrammaticality. This can be verified generally by studying large textual databases or even smaller corpora of the writings of individual authors. In English, once TH inflection passed from general use, remaining only in exceptional cases. The notion took over among those predisposed to make black-and-white grammatical rules that inflectional variation was strained grammar. These prescriptivist views have been used by Barlow and others to critique Book of Mormon grammar. The thinking may have proceeded along these lines. Joseph Smith was responsible for the English language of the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith didn't know there was closely occurring third-person singular S and TH variation in earlier English.
or earlier English didn't have closely occurring third-person singular S and TH variation. Therefore, closely occurring inflectional S and TH variation in the Book of Mormon is defective. The first item is foundational to Barlow's view, but it is a premature assumption. Scholars must carefully study the form and structure of Book of Mormon language before making such a judgment. Most don't undertake such study. Instead, they follow ideology or prior inexpert opinions. Joseph didn't know a lot of the archaic semantic and syntactic usage of the earliest text. For instance, external textual evidence indicates that he wasn't familiar with but if, being equivalent to unless, counsel the Lord, being equivalent to consult the Lord, as in Alma 3737, the waters departed, being equivalent to the waters divided, as in Helaman 8.11, and whereby, as being equivalent to why, as in Ether 8.9. And he wasn't familiar with high-rate, non-emphatic, did paraphrasis of the 16th century, yet there it is in the Book of Mormon. Archaic, extra-biblical grammar found throughout the Book of Mormon argues strongly against the generally accepted assumption that Joseph could have been responsible for the English language text. Systematic, extra-biblical Book of Mormon language importantly includes, but is not limited to, the core of grammar, the present tense verbal system, the past tense verbal system, the perfect tense verbal system, and the future tense verbal system. All these are genuinely archaic, but unlike King James' idiom in a variety of ways. Fifth, Joseph Smith didn't refine the language of the Book of Mormon in 1837. He attempted to modernize the text, and his editing was inconsistent. Changing yieldeth to yields in Mosiah 319 is obviously one instance of that. It isn't difficult to argue from examples that he even occasionally eliminated some beautiful aspects of the text. As a linguist who considers a multitude of prior usage, I happen to find syntactically mediated subject-verb agreement variation quite interesting and unobjectionable. Most of these have been eliminated, and many by Joseph himself. Here is an example of that, from Alma 5736, quote, Yea, and I trust that the souls of them which has been slain have entered into the rest of their God, close quote. The which has was changed to who have, in 1837. The same kind of syntactically influenced has and have variation is found in the 17th century. From 1681, Roger Lestrange, The Character of a Papist in Masquerade. Quote, the whole strain of them that has been taken off by the hand of justice have so behaved themselves at the last cast. Close quote. These examples exhibit nearby verb agreement variation in the same sentence. In the latter part of the early modern English period, plural has, along with plural hath, etc., was relatively favored after relative pronouns, but even in those contexts, plural has was not common. In the above examples, this underlying tendency is expressed overtly. The usual verb form have occurs outside of the relative clause, as the head of a predicate whose complex subject contains the exceptional verb form has. Sometimes Joseph Smith reduced overall textual consistency in his 1837 editing, as in the following example. 
From 1 Nephi 1513, 1830 edition. Quote, After that the Messiah hath manifested himself in body unto the children of men. Close quote. Changed to, quote, After the Messiah shall be manifested in body unto the children of men. Close quote. The deletion of archaic that, though unnecessary, is hardly objectionable. But Joseph also changed active, reflexive, hath manifested himself, to passive, shall be manifested, in his 1837 editing. The passive switch is contraindicated, as shown by internal textual comparison. Quote, Everywhere else the text says that the Savior will manifest himself, 23 times, never that the Savior will be manifested. Close quote. From Royal Skousen, Analysis of Textual Variations. Sixth, the title page, quote, If there be fault, it be the mistake of men, close quote, is an example of contextually influenced subjunctive, since we don't find it be without a governing subjunctive trigger elsewhere in the earliest text. The it be follows from the influence of a preceding subjunctive form, in this case, the be of if there be. Here is a likely 17th century example, since it be is in a resultative clause not directly governed by the hypothetical. From 1629, Lancelot Andrews, Sermons. Quote, but if there be no cause, and so it be in vain, I joy therein, and will joy. Close quote. This English bishop and scholar oversaw part of the translation of the King James Bible. He was the chief of the Westminster translators and director of the First Westminster Committee, responsible for the translation of Genesis to Second Kings. The above usage by Andrews was not illiterate or strained. By extension, neither is that of the Book of Mormon. In the next example, a stronger grammatical case can be made for a following subjunctive, it be, but the indicative mood was employed, telling us that indicative, it is, was possible in the Lancelot Andrews example, where the independence of the clause was more likely. From 1648, John March, compiler, Court of King's Bench, England and Wales reports, quote, But if there be a venare facius, and it is erroneous, it is not holden by any statute. Close quote. Singular B usage in indicative contexts is uncommon in the earlier textual record but it can be found even when there is no closely preceding subjunctive that might have led to the use of B. From Numbers 5.30, quote, Or when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him, and he be jealous over his wife, and shall set the woman before the Lord. Close quote. King James, he be, is often rendered, he is, in modern versions. From 1618, John Wood. The true honor of navigation and navigators. Quote, Though the Jews would have stoned him, Herod would have killed him. And here he be in a great tempest, to all shows in extremity of danger. Yet no moral of he sleep securely, knowing that no harm could come to him. Close quote. More common in the textual record is the plural be in indicative contexts. Here are some examples that contain either contextually influenced subjunctive they be or indicative they be, depending on how one wants to look at it. 
matching Book of Mormon usage. From 1532, Gentian Hervet, translator, Xenophon's Treaty of Household. Quote, no, by my faith, and if there be any, they be very few. Close quote. From 1577, Barnaby Gouge, translator, Conrad Hirschbach's Four Books of Husbandry, quote, which is a sign that there is either but one king, or if there be more, they be agreed. Close quote. From 1578, John Florio, Familiar Speech, Merry Proverbs, Witty Sentences, and Golden Sayings. Quote, if there be any, they be brought. Close quote. From Moroni, 817. Quote, and if there be faults, they be the faults of a man. Close quote. Seventh, saith is frequently employed in the earliest text for the historical present, as it is in the King James Bible. Barlow includes this item under the umbrella of strained language, perhaps because of a high usage rate, which, in any event, is not automatically chargeable to Joseph Smith. Conclusion The foregoing critique clarifies that understanding the English language of the Book of Mormon requires much more knowledgeable consideration than has been proffered by most LDS scholars through the years. Some well-known figures in the field might currently misunderstand Book of Mormon translation issues because of underinformed, inaccurate views of its vocabulary and grammar. Reliable pronouncements on Book of Mormon language must proceed from careful scholarship that involves the consulting of large databases of modern English, both early and late, as well as the 1611 King James Bible, and even other early Bibles. Analysts will take an important step forward once they free themselves of a desire to stipulate against descriptive linguistic evidence that the earliest text of the Book of Mormon is full of bad grammar and that Joseph Smith corrected much of it for the 1837 edition. Rather, the text and the textual record demand that we seek to know and understand the archaic English, both biblical and extra-biblical, that makes up the fiber of the book's language. Stanford Carmack has a linguistics and a law degree from Stanford University, as well as a doctorate in Hispanic languages and literature from the University of California, Santa Barbara, specializing in historical syntax. In the past, he has had articles published on Georgian verb morphology and object-participle agreement in Old Spanish and Old Catalan. He currently researches Book of Mormon morphosyntax and semantic usage as it relates to modern English, both early and late, and contributes by means of textual analysis to Volume 3 of the Book of Mormon Critical Text Project, directed by Royal Skousen. This has been a recording of Barlow on Book of Mormon Language, an examination of some strained grammar by Stanford Carmack, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 27, read by Steve Metcalf. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.